0: Lately, something's and hard to define. has got himself a girl and I to make and she's with those eyes. Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And our movie today is one that I'm especially proud to present on Staff Picks. In fact, this is a uh, second part, really, of a two-part podcast. We did The Prestige earlier, a magic movie that came out in 2006. Well, this is part two of that podcast because there was another movie that came out in 2006 called The Illusionist. And these movies will be forever linked in history, they will always be compared, there is no way you can talk about one without talking about the other, they're so similar, and so I said, you know, why don't we just steer right into the curve? We did a Prestige episode, let's do an illusionist illusionist episode where we'll talk about why this movie is far better than the Prestige, and why people who believe otherwise are fools. And my co-host today, um, this is someone I'm very excited to finally bring on the show, I have known her for years, uh, man, 20 years almost. Um, Not only that, I have a very interesting back history with her, and I'll explain that in a second. She is one of the uh, smartest and most articulate co-hosts I'm ever going to have on Staff Picks because she is a DJ, she talks for a living, she runs a trivia game, I believe, and she's also in Mensa. So I have to be on my toes here because she's going to bring her A game, and I'm a little worried about this. I'm finally excited to have her on the show. Welcome to Staff Picks, Amy Tweeg.
1: Thanks, Mario. I'm excited to be here.
0: So, Amy, why don't you tell us a little about your back history and then I'll tell people about the story, how we know each other?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, what is there to say? I do have two different hats, but both in the entertainment industry. I am a DJ, primarily doing weddings, corporate events, private parties, that kind of thing. I also have public trivia shows that I host in bars and restaurants around the area. I'm doing that four times a week, so I like to stay fresh on the mic, and it's a fun gig. I get to talk to people and give them a hard time for a living.
0: <laughs> now, the back history with Amy that I have to talk about, I, I'm not sure that you want me to go into this, but I will. <laughs> is that many years ago, Amy and I knew each other from the reality TV world and the world of online role-playing games amy do you know where we're going with this uh, okinawa <laughs> yes i ran a survivor online role-playing game called survivor okinawa many years ago and amy was one of the players and i will say the other players hate me saying this but amy was my favorite player
1: <laughs> you tell everybody that joni was your favorite player chris was your favorite player
0: Yes, but I, I ended up writing a story after the game. I ran this game, and I wrote a story, and it was basically all about Amy and how awesome she is. So you are the first person I have ever had on Staff Picks that I've literally written a book for.
1: Well, that's something, I guess. <laughs> Thank you for the honor. Yes.
0: So anyway, speaking of people who worship other people, let's talk <laughs> about Edward Norton here. Are you oh, uh, yes. Okay, let's get into this. Uh, the Illusionist, explain to people what this movie is.
1: Oh, The Illusionist. It's awesome. Um, definitely the better of the two movies. We'll get into that in a minute. Ed Norton, Jessica Biel, Paul Giamatti. Right there. A great cast. Um, Ed Norton is the titular character in the movie. Um, he is the illusionist. He's Eisenheim. And he has this show partway through the movie. I'm going too far already. Sorry. Um, <laughs> where he has this huge crowd, and people are so intrigued about how he does it and what he does it, but it's actually behind the scenes, behind the scenes, where all the magic really happens in his personal life.
0: I'm very excited. I think you're the first person to use the word titular on Staff Picks. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. I knew the Mensa vocabulary would come in handy. It has to. So okay, I gotta give a little hit back history on this movie. Again, this is an Edward Norton starring vehicle. Edward Norton, one of the greatest actors of his generation. Would you agree with that?
1: Definitely so.
0: He is also my wife's all-time favorite actor. Really? Yeah, and to the point that I will, I will say right now, my wife is going to leave me for Edward Norton one day. I know this. Like <laughs> I mean, he's gonna make me a cuckold at some point. so it's and I know this like she loves Edward Norton she loves two people Dave Grohl and Edward Norton but Edward Norton is the one I know she's going to leave me for and like it's so inevitable that I can't even be mad about it I just know it's going to happen one day
1: yeah I mean you have to be on board with that those are solid choices
0: I'd be kind of honored I mean if she left me for Edward Norton he's a good actor and I like Edward Norton but I will say talking about an Edward Norton is weird because I have this i think i believe the proper term would be the sword of damocles hanging over my head that i know (laughs) that my wife will leave me for this actor one day so it is very odd to finally talk about one of his movies here
1: well i'm glad i can be here for you for you know being able to talk about the movie but also some emotional support mario you might need it
0: thank you it's 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 very hard amy i'm just i'm hanging on by a thread here talking about poor edward who i know is he's my superior
1: i can feel that
0: (laughs) so are you are you team edward also
1: very much so. I love Team Edward, but I in this movie, he, he is wonderful and he is amazing, but I'm looking forward to talking about Paul Giamatti.
0: Ah, okay. Yeah, okay. So besides Edward Norton, maybe the greatest actor of his generation, we have Rufus Sewell in here, who is a personal favorite of mine, because he's always the best scummy, noble asshole you'll ever find in a movie. Mm-hmm. going way back if people if you people remember my uh, a knight's tale podcast he is the one that steals the show and that one is the evil count adamar and then he shows up here as this evil uh what is he an archduke
1: um crown prince
0: okay crown prince and then we also have like you said paul giamatti now if people don't know paul giamatti try to explain who he is to people
1: he's in everything <laughs> yes. um He is an actor that can do so many different things. It doesn't matter what kind of garbage movie he's in. He was in Alvin and the Chipmunks, for crying (laughs) out loud. And it still didn't tank his career because he just manages to shine in everything he does.
0: Yeah, he's uh, amazing. And, And I'll give people a little back history on Paul Giamatti. His dad was the commissioner of baseball, a Bartlett Giamatti. And his dad is actually the man who banned Pete Rose from baseball. There's your little trivia and Amy, for your trivia game. <laughs> and then after he banned Pete Rose, he died. And then his son, Paul, became a big actor. Although I do have some other trivia that I might want to throw out here, Amy. You might not know this. Okay, shoot. Do you know the connection between Paul Giamatti and Edward Norton? I do not. Yes, I stumped her. I stumped the <laughs> trivia girl. Paul Giamatti and Edward Norton. You think that they're very different in age, wouldn't you?
1: Oh, you know what? I do know this, as a matter of fact. They were in the same drama class.
0: They were. Paul Giamatti looks old. Ever since he showed up in Hollywood, he started in this Howard Stern movie, Private Parts, which will be a future uh, Staff Picks episode one day. He is the the, uh, aforementioned pig vomit. And he shows up, but he always looked way older than he was. And Edward Norton has always had these boyish features where he looks much younger than he is. But the funny thing is those guys are almost the exact same age. They were both in Yale. They went to Yale. They were in the same drama department. They were in a lot of the same plays. And here they are for the first time in a movie together, acting against each other, glaring at one another. And again, you think they're way different in age, but they're not. They're only two years apart.
1: That's amazing. But they do so well together. So it would make sense that they have some experience working with each other because they play off of each other
0: so well. Yeah, we have Edward Norton as the illusionist Eisenheim and Paul Giamatti as uh, Detective Ull, I believe is the name. Yes. Okay, before we get too much into this movie, this is, The Illusionist is based on a short story, correct?
1: Yes, it is. Based on a short story, um, but loosely based. You can hardly tell them apart. It is called Eisenheim the Illusionist, or you can barely, like, pick things out from the short story and the movie that correlate. It's really just somebody took an idea and ran with it and wrote a screenplay.
0: Okay. And have you have you read the short story?
1: I read part of it. I read part of it. And it just wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't even remotely interesting, to be honest with you. <laughs> this
0: is not a high endorsement for uh, Eisenheim the Illusionist, where it's a short story to begin with and Amy read part of it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. My focus I I can't I just can't keep focus. There are too many things pulling my attention and if you don't grab it then it's gone.
0: All right, you are going to make it through this podcast, right?
1: Um, maybe. All right.
0: I mean, I have bright shiny objects over here if you need to look at them.
1: Perfect. All right, we're good.
0: <laughs> All right, so The Prestige versus The Illusionist, the two magic movies that both came out in 2006. Almost, I will say, Amy, I I will admit this, almost universally accepted that the prestige is the better of the two. Yes. Rebuttal. Do you have a rebuttal to that?
1: Yes, I do. Um, I don't believe that this is going on just pure entertainment value, because there are some things that you have to look at. Eisenheim does such a beautiful job controlling his audience. And, of course, as an entertainer, that is more compelling to me. Um, it's a master class, honestly, in how to present, how to set the stage, how to, I mean, he comes out and he sits down in a chair and he doesn't speak. I mean, that's awesome.
0: He gives him the old Gwen Stefani treatment.
1: Yes, he actually <laughs> does. <laughs> so it's it's amazing on that level. And also the magician culture that, you see in certain pieces of the movie where he will show the uh, Paul Giamatti's character I'm sorry that's slipping my mind right now Ool Ool thank you he will show Ool the what a weird name um he'll show Ool a magic trick but and he'll tell him how it's done but he won't go into his larger tricks which is what Ool is asking about he'll give him a little bit but never too much And he's such a personable individual off the stage that people genuinely like him, but he's an entirely different character on stage. Like those things are cool. The air of secrecy, the air of mystery. He's kind and approachable off. Like, like I said, he's a masterclass in what to do for professional entertainers.
0: So you are one yourself. You're a professional entertainer. So you, this relates to you somehow.
1: Very much. So he's, he's brilliant at what he does and for me and for any professional in any field you always want to get better or at least you should so you're always looking at things and analyzing things trying to figure out what can i bring from that experience that will make me better in my own field
0: now have you ever made ghosts appear at one of your dj shows
1: not yet i'm working on it (laughs) i'm working on it but i feel like that is above my pay grade at the moment (laughs)
0: Yeah, speaking of ghosts, there's some really cool tricks in this movie. And I will just give a quick summary of why I could make the argument that the illusionist is better than the prestige. Prestige fans be damned. (laughs) And my argument is that everything that happens in this movie could actually happen. It's all based on real tricks that were known to exist at the time in 1900 or whenever. And it's all based on known illusions and it's all... There's one, The Orange Tree, which we'll debate whether it's realistic. But everything else in this movie could have been done exactly like it appears in the movie. And this is the one flaw I see in The Prestige, is that The Prestige cheats. Mm -hmm. They have to use sci-fi to make the story work. They have to invent this uh, machine that can make people disappear and vanish, which does not exist. So my argument has always been that I love The Prestige. It's such a good movie. But it's really a sci-fi movie. It's really about how people use sci-fi to fake magic, and The Illusionist is not. It does not cheat, so I think it's a little more noble, to be honest.
1: A little more pure, yeah. Um, But with going into the sci-fi realm, I mean, you can do anything when it's just you and your imagination, but these were actual tricks that were used in The Illusionist. Granted, The Prestige did use some of Houdini's tricks, Um, but everything can be done in The Illusionist in real life. So... I think it gives it an edge too.
0: Yeah. And there's one trick in here in particular, the ghost trick, which I'm going to go on and talk about forever because it's an illusion known as Pepper's ghost, which I have seen before in person. And it's the coolest trick I have ever seen. And Amy and I talked about this before the podcast. So that's the whole premise of why I want to go into the illusionist because I want to talk about Pepper's ghost and how cool it is. So get ready for that one, Amy.
1: Yeah. You thought this was about the illusionist in turn. It's about Pepper's ghost. Hang on guys.
0: Now, one more thing before we get into the movie here is that I just wrote in my notes the other day is that there's another big difference between the prestige and the illusionist. And it's real simple in that I wrote the prestige has a very negative view of human nature and it's very negative. It's a dark, cynical movie. And the illusionist is just the opposite. It's a very positive movie about love and relationships and like true love and like what you can accomplish if you're a man who has nothing. So that's the other big difference I noticed between the two movies, that one of them is very positive and one of them is very negative. So I'm very excited to talk about the positive one this time.
1: Okay, that sounds good. Um, also, to go off of that, you could also note that every character in The Illusionist is nuanced. No one is 100% good or 100% bad. Even the crown prince at the end, toward the end of the movie, when he has you know the gun in his hand He's talking about everything that he believes he's done in his power to save the country. So in his mind, he is noble. Is he a horrible person and does bad things? Yes, of course. But everyone is nuanced in some way. And you get to see good and manipulative and scheming and evil in almost every character.
0: Even in the girl from Seventh Heaven?
1: Even in Jessica Biel, (laughs) yes. Yes. Which, can we just say that Jessica Biel impressed me for the first time in this film? It took that long.
0: <laughs> well, I was reading there was a lot of controversy at the time that she was cast in this movie because they're like, that's the girl from Seventh Heaven. She can't do a movie with Edward Norton. There's no way. So, like, people were expecting her to be terrible. And like you said, she's actually not bad in it. She actually holds her own pretty well. So I will I will tip my cap to Jessica Biel here, Mrs. Justin Timberlake. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So are you ready to delve into the storyline here?
1: I'm I'm very ready. All right.
0: So, again, the uh, setting of this movie is in Vienna. Now, do we know the year? Do they ever say? I'm assuming it's right around 1900 or somewhere.
1: I don't think they ever said.
0: Okay. That's part of the illusion. You have to guess. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so the movie opens, and it's all kind of told in flashback. We start in this, uh, there's a magic show in 1900, and again, this this is historically accurate. They were, they did have these big stage magicians at the time. It was a big deal. These guys would go from town to town and put on their show, and this guy Eisenheim is putting on a show, and then all of a sudden what he's doing is he's summoning these ghosts. He's summoning people back from the dead, and what happens at the start of the movie, I'm just racing through this because it's not important. It'll come back later, but Mm -hmm. the cops rush on the stage. They say, you cannot summon ghosts. We're going to arrest you. And there's all this hubbub, and this guy Eisenheim, Edward Norton, gets arrested for summoning ghosts and disturbing the peace. And we find out that this is something he's been warned not to do before. Like, you've been told this is the last straw, you're going to jail. And then, basically, from this point on, it's all a flashback. We see how we got to this point.
1: Yes, we get to see how everything was created. We are at that moment, and then we're thrown back into Eisenheim's childhood.
0: Yeah, it's. Although if I recall, if I recall, it's kind of a uh, Brady Bunch movie opening here, where the Archduke is like, "What's his story? Tell us about his name, or tell us how did Eisenheim become this illusionist?" Then we flash back to his story. So it's kind of a fun little, <laughs> like they do in the Brady Bunch movie. What's the Brady's story? And then we go right into the theme music. Yes. <laughs> so let's talk about his the flashback here. We we start with very young Eisenheim, and tell us about his his history he's not he's not a rich boy is he
1: no he's not he we find out later in the movie actually he's a cabinet maker's son and he happens upon a magician a traveling magician one day um so the story goes no one knows for sure um and the magician does a couple of cool tricks um fascinates eisenheim And according to the legend, as it were, both the traveling musician and the tree that he's leaning upon disappear as soon as he's done with his tricks. So this leads Eisenheim to be consumed by and completely focused on magic. So you see him in little flashback clips, spending all of his time learning these different tricks alone in his room, um, which is very sparse because, again, he and his family are
0: poor. And he's sort of a strange child. he does not fit in with the other kids in in the streets of Vienna,
1: not at all, not at all. You see him being heckled when he's walking along, holding an egg on a stick and keeping it balanced. The kids all want him to drop it. they're not rooting for him. they don't care.
0: He's being bullied is what you're saying.
1: yes, <laughs> yes, thank Mario <laughs>
0: exactly that's what I am like a thesaurus. That's what I do.
1: <laughs> I appreciate that
0: so. Eisenheim is just this weird little kid in Vienna walking around practicing his little illusions. And just, again, he was consumed by how cool it was that this traveling magician taught him how to do these tricks. And that's the whole point of this movie. Everything you're going to see is an illusion. In fact, I would argue this whole movie is a magic trick. It's actually very cleverly set up. And it's one you almost need to see twice to see how they do it. But I'll just, I'm jumping a little further ahead here.
1: No, that's totally true. It's better the next time you watch it.
0: Yeah, this we'll get. There's there's only one part of this magic trick in this movie that I'm not a hundred percent sure they pull off, but we'll talk about that at the end. Okay. Okay. So Eisenheim is just this weird little kid walking around. He's like what, twelve, thirteen? I I don't know how old he is, but the only person who gives him the time of day is this girl. There's this girl, and she's like born of nobility, and she rides around on a horse with her other rich girl friends. And for some reason, she's taken by this weird loser who practices magic, and she's just kind of entranced by him. And what is her name? I always forget her name. Her name is Sophie. Sophie, yes. Sophie the rich girl and Edward the poor boy. And it's like Romeo and Juliet. They're from different worlds. She's rich, he's poor, but they just kind of become attracted to each other. And it's a very, the heart of this movie, it's a very pure love story between these two people that are not supposed to be together.
1: Very much so. It's wonderful, too, because you see her, the first time you see her in the movie, she is surrounded by people, and people who are bullying him, no less. But she is still captivated by him. You see them exchange a look, and the next thing you know, they're together all the time.
0: Together all the time in a forbidden love of rich and poor, and they have to sneak away. This is, again, the whole heart of this movie is a love story. It's Like I said, it's much more pure and... uh, warm-hearted than the prestige here <laughs> <Very> <laughs> which much so. is the, the most horrible the prestige is about the most horrible sides of human nature this is about the more uplifting parts that they they go together and they have to run off in secret and like kiss and talk to each other and this amy is where they start making plans right for their future
1: yes yes the duchess sophie um wants to run away Every time they feel threatened together as children or young adults, she begs him to make them disappear. Mm -hmm. So they want to be together. That's their thing. And then he presents her with. A locket that he created himself
0: yeah a very special locket it's one that can only be opened a certain way you have to know the secret of the the it's like a special little diagram and you have to twist it a certain way to be able to open it and only he and her know how to open this locket it's a little heart and she opens it up and it's got a picture of edward her boyfriend inside Mm-hmm. very cute yeah and what's interesting about this movie is that it's it's powerful the first time you watch it But it's when you watch it a second time, you notice the foreshadowing, how interesting it is, how they set up the end of this movie, where she keeps saying here at the start of the movie, please make us disappear. You're going to make us disappear and we'll go live happily in a meadow, in a cabin somewhere and no one will know who we are. And he promises her, he will. That's his whole mission in life. I will find a way to make us disappear. And that's, it will become important later in the movie, more poignant, but we're about to come to a point where there's something he cannot do. He cannot make her disappear.
1: Yes, they are discovered together, which kills me every time I see that scene. Um, The people who were supposed to be guarding Sophie are out searching for her, and they are huddled up in this little cave that they found. It's almost like a little home, has a door on it and everything. Um, And they're huddled up together, and she keeps begging him to make them disappear, but he can't. So they end up taking her... And they threaten Edward um, if he sees her again, then they'll arrest him and his family.
0: If you so so much as touch this rich girl ever again, your whole family will suffer for generations. That's basically what he's told. And like you said, Amy, yeah, this one breaks my heart. This is a very emotional scene where the cops drag this rich girl away from her boyfriend and she's screaming she's screaming at him make us disappear make us disappear because she believes in his magic abilities and his illusions so much and it's the one time in his life he cannot do it he cannot pull off the trick to make them disappear and they are separated and really it's one of these dot 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 and then he leaves for 15 years in in shame. He
1: he leaves. I always had the impression that he left in part because he wanted to protect his family.
0: Ah. Okay. He's a good guy. I agree. Yeah. So he he's doing his best to protect his family from the royal family and from their vengeance by just leaving so there's no temptation anymore.
1: Yes, and then he goes and for fifteen years he goes and explores the world. He goes to a farm in Prague, his uncle's farm in Prague. He goes to minor Asia. He goes to Russia. But eventually he lands back in Venice.
0: Yes. And now he's Edward Norton. Yes.
1: By the way, shout out to those child actors. They did a really nice job in that movie.
0: I agree. Although my wife, we were just watching the other night. And my wife pointed out they don't really look like Edward Norton and Jessica Beale. I mean, they're good actors, but it's like I don't buy that that's Jessica Beale.
1: I bought that it was Jessica Biel more than I bought the Ed Norton. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just because I have high standards when it comes to Ed Norton and less so when it comes to Seventh Heaven.
0: <laughs> As did we all, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so Edward Norton goes and he walks the earth like Cain in Kung Fu, like uh, Jules in Pulp Fiction, and then he comes back. 15 years later, and now he's a world-famous magician. He is no longer Edward, the cabinet maker's son. Now he's Eisenheim, the illusionist. And from here on out, the movie is just a series of him putting on the most spectacular shows for the people of Vienna and them becoming increasingly more and more blasphemous, I guess the word would be.
1: Yes, shocking. He does some things to openly annoy and flout the power of the crown prince, which is kind of a mistake. If you want to keep your show open,
0: kind of, yeah, it's don't piss off the royalty. That seems to be the uh, general trend in magic or anywhere. (laughs) All right. right. Point point. Amy, you got that. You got me on that one. (laughs) So let's talk about his first show here, because this is the one that's really interesting. And again, this is where I add the disclaimer why this movie is so special Every trick that's done in this movie was one that did exist in Europe in 1900. So we're going to go into his first show here and just know this was stuff that stage magicians were doing.
1: Yes, less spectacularly so, but they absolutely were doing it. This first show is probably my favorite, Um, the orange tree trick.
0: All right. So explain to people who have not seen this movie what the orange tree trick is, although I will... Just say before we get there. This is a really cool trick. I've seen it done in person, and I cannot believe they were doing it in 1900. I could not believe they had the uh, what would be the right word, the hydraulics to pull this off, but they did.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. Um, he from start to finish, he has an orange in his hand. He's talking about time and the you know how we've all felt time either speed up or slow down. He cuts open this orange and there's a seed inside. He takes the seed over to a bucket that is sitting on a table, places it inside, and magically, obviously, the tree starts to grow. It's a small sprout, and then slowly it continues to grow into a full grown tree with fruit on it. It's spectacular
0: not quite a tree more like a small shrub but like not like a I'm trying to, people who've never seen this it's not a full on 40 foot tree it goes about 4 feet up 3 feet up and it sprouts it actually sprouts oranges
1: yes it's a little damn tree but it's a tree
0: <laughs> yes <laughs> we're going into miyagi territory here it's a bonsai <laughs> exactly yeah but again google this trick google the illusionist orange tree trick and you will see people have replicated what it would have looked like in the 1900s it was very much a real trick um in the movie they use a little more cgi to make it a little more fantastic but you can make the argument that maybe from far away in this giant theater maybe that's what it looked like to them anyway so i don't know but it's it, it it was a real trick and then there's a second part the butterfly trick to it right
1: That was so cool. um, Before the orange tree thing even started, he asked for a handkerchief. And he put the handkerchief in the box. And he gave the box to the woman who the handkerchief belonged to. At the end of the trick, after the orange tree was fully grown, he asks the lady to open the box. Of course, the handkerchief is gone. So they want to know where it is. Two cute little blue butterflies come flying out from backstage holding the handkerchief.
0: Yeah. Now this is the one I've seen this done in person the butterfly trick and now in person it looks very robotic. The movie they really gussied it up a little to make the butterflies completely CGI. But this is oh, this is the one part that is a little fancy. But again, this was a known trick. The orange tree and the butterfly were a known trick and I, I only did half-assed research on this. I didn't really go into it, but like there was a guy, <laughs> Houdin, I think, H-O-U-D-I-N, who did this trick. And he was such a powerful and well-known stage magician that Houdini eventually took his name from Houdin. So it's all kind of based on real life here. Nice. Okay, so all this was real magic and all this was done in real life exactly like this. It might not have looked like this. And this is the the point of contention. I've gotten in with um, people that like that like this movie perhaps a little less than Amy and I do. They say, "Well." You say the, the, they don't cheat in The Illusionist. They don't use fake magic. They kind of use CGI in that orange tree and butterfly trick. They make it look better than it would have. And I'm like, yeah, maybe it did. You can make the argument. This is what it would look, look like to the audience. And I actually had a friend, uh, Josh Muir, who was just on my Demolition Man podcast. He made a joke last night that I have to share. He said, well, in Vienna, in a big stage in 1900, everyone would have been on opium. So that's probably what it would have looked like anyway. So I'll once again, point Joshua. That was a good point.
1: Very excellent point.
0: So at the end of the show, Eisenheim has pulled out this really amazing orange tree and butterfly trick. And everyone in the crowd is amazed. And this is where we meet the second big character in the movie, Detective Uhl.
1: Detective Uhl, He is fascinated by this trick. He's applauding probably harder than anyone else in the room. Um,
0: He's like an amateur magician.
1: Yes, he dabbles in close-up magic, card tricks, coins, sleight of hand. But he's never been able to do anything like this before. So he has almost a reverent relationship with Eisenheim the first time they talk.
0: Yeah, they, they will have a really interesting relationship. And like you said at the start of the movie, this is really and not just an Edward Norton movie. It's an Edward Norton and Paul Giamatti that they will have a really it's not quite antagonistic. They will have a very interesting, deep relationship in that this inspector technically works for the crown prince. He works for royalty, but he is a poor son of a butcher, just like Eisenheim. He's a, he's a poor, he's like a commoner. So he has an affinity for Eisenheim, even though he knows he shouldn't uh, encourage it.
1: Yes, absolutely. He is one of those characters that he has to do his job but he remembers where he came from, and he relates to Eisenheim and puts him on a little bit of a pedestal in the beginning of the movie because this is this man that was a poor boy, but now he's traveling the world doing magic. In the back of Inspector Wool's mind, I'm thinking he's a little jealous.
0: Yeah, this is the life he would have preferred. Yes, Although I will say, in keeping with Paul Giamatti tradition, he's about 30 years old in this movie, and he looks 60. Isn't that horrible? <laughs> he, he will he will age gracefully into an old man, much like my hero Norm MacDonald. They were always old people.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You'll never be able to tell the difference. Yes.
0: So, yeah, Ull goes backstage, and he wants to learn more about Eisenheim's illusions. And Eisenheim's like, hell no, I don't tell my illusions. And it was like, please, you got to tell me that orange trick. He goes, I am, like Amy said, I dabble in magic. I I can do this. I just have not done it this well. <laughs> and Eisenheim's like, bitch, no, I don't think so. So Exactly. So Ull is, you see, wants the trick, the the secret of that orange tree trick. And this will be a running theme through the whole movie. He wants that trick. And instead, Eisenheim gives him a lesser trick, the ball trick.
1: Yes, the ball trick. And it tells him does it on him and then tells him how it's done. And you can see Inspector Uhl. he's genuinely charmed by having the secret and being able to share that with Eisenheim. He's charmed enough where for the moment, he forgets about the whole orange tree thing.
0: I should point out the same charmed, entranced look that Uhl has when he looks at Eisenheim is the same look my wife gets when we watch an Edward Norton movie. It's very dangerous. <laughs> I'm like, could you avert your eyes and just not look at him, please?
1: Well, he's just that charming. We love Ed Norton. What can we say?
0: He entrances her. It's terrible. Those eyes. Those eyes are dangerous.
1: Um, yes, they are. Are you okay? Do you need a minute?
0: I'm okay. We'll, we'll cut this part out if I, if I start weeping.
1: Okay, that sounds good.
0: (laughs) Okay, so Detective Uhl has gone and seen Eisenheim's show, and he cannot stop talking about it. So he, like, goes to the Crown Prince. He works for the Crown Prince, right? Crown Prince Leopold? Mm Mm-hmm. And he says, we should go to this show. I mean, I I don't know if we see this in the movie, but it's implied. He says, hey, you should go check out this show. This guy's really good. And so now shit's going to start getting real, because now Leopold himself, Rufus Sewell, the future ruler of of Austria, shows up to Eisenheim's show for the first time.
1: Yes, but he's not alone.
0: Now, who would he be with, Amy?
1: He might be with Duchess Sophie.
0: Oh, man, he's he's been scooting in on, on Eisenheim's turf?
1: Well, come on now. You can't leave a girl alone for 15 years and expect that not to be a thing.
0: Yeah, you got to lock that down. You got Eisenheim need to put a ring on it, really.
1: Exactly.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, so his childhood girlfriend, Sophie, is now the girlfriend slash fiance slash mistress of the crown prince. Do we know what their relationship is?
1: He, she is his intended at that point. They are not engaged yet, but it is intended for their two families to make an alliance with their marriage.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, so she is, is flying in circles that Eisenheim could not possibly dream of being a part of. And now she's engaged to the crown prince. And what happens is the crown prince shows up at the next performance and eisenheim has a new trick what's the new trick amy the new trick is dabbling with death (laughs) yes that's that's exactly where we're going to go in this movie we're going to start doing death magic
1: yes because that's fun and it's not going to get you in trouble at all
0: (laughs) so so eisenheim's up on stage and he's like i'm going to kill somebody and bring them back to life is there anyone in the audience who does not fear death who wishes to come up and be a part of my trick
1: but don't worry, no harm will befall you. Yeah, okay.
0: <laughs> so, so in one of the greatest dick moves in movie history, the crown prince is like, you know, if you want to kill someone on stage, kill my girlfriend. Right. <laughs> so, Sophie's like, what? And So the crown prince is like, no, it'd be good. So he volunteers Sophie to come down on stage and be murdered. And this is where we get an impromptu, you know, reunion on stage of young childhood lovers, Sophie and... Uh, Edward? Edward. Edward. Yeah, so they like for the first time in 15 years, they're all of a sudden looking at each other again.
1: Yes, she does not recognize him at first, but when they're close up, you can see the recognition on her face, and he obviously knows who she is.
0: I'm going to steal a uh, Monty Python, Holy Grail line here and say, I didn't recognize you at first, Eisenheim, and he's like, why not? And she's like, you didn't have shit all over you. (laughs) Right?
1: You clean up well. I don't know who you are anymore. It's... Such an intense scene, though, because the two of them, and I'm maybe it's just from my entertainer perspective, but the two of them are sitting there and they're staring at each other. And he's slowly going through the intro to this trick, but they're never taking their eyes off of each other. And for me, I'm noticing every single second that there's pause and there's tension. And you have to know that the audience isn't just focusing on the trick. You have to know that. So that's always an interesting scene for me.
0: So the audience is like, these two people are going to do it up on stage. I mean, maybe. <laughs> now, have you ever had an old boyfriend show up at your DJ shows? Is it like this?
1: Um, it, I have had that happen and no, it's not like that.
0: (laughs) Have you ever killed them and made their soul appear?
1: (sighs) Only in my dreams.
0: (laughs) So that's the trick. So, so Eisenheim pretends to kill Sophie. She's looking into a mirror and she's got this creepy red robe on and all of a sudden the reflection in the mirror is not her anymore. Like she's doing movements and the reflection isn't doing them And all of a sudden, someone comes up behind her and kills her with a sword in the mirror. And she's like, what the hell just happened? And, like, Edward makes her pass out. It's this really kind of morbid, creepy trick. And then, like, our little ghost of her floats out of the mirror. Like, he's actually killed her on stage. And the audience is like, whoa, we just went to next level magic here.
1: It was was phenomenal. And everybody was impressed by it. But there's that scene again where he catches her as she, quote, unquote, dies as she passes out. And they're very close and personal. I wouldn't, if I were Eisenheim, I would not be that close and personal with the crown prince's fiance.
0: Yeah, these, he's crossing a line here. You do not, the hands do not touch the, the future leader of the country.
1: Exactly. And this is the first line of many that he crosses.
0: He's the constant line crosser. Okay, so, uh, yes. so after the show, the crown prince was impressed by the trick. He's like, dude, you killed my girlfriend. Nice work. You know, he's like, (laughs) I beat and kill women all the time. Nice, cool story, bro.
1: (laughs) Isn't that weird how they connect on, or he attempts to connect with Eisenheim on that level?
0: He connects on the violence to fiance's level.
1: Yes, it's so creepy.
0: Yeah. So the crown prince comes down and the crown prince does not like, you get the sense he does not like the idea of magic. He thinks it's all stupid. It's all trickery. And he's like, I just don't like this. And he tries to embarrass Eisenheim right off the bat. He's like, do you claim supernatural powers, son? And Eisenheim's like, well, I never said that. I just put him on a show. And so you can see the, the the crown prince is trying to embarrass him, trying to humiliate him, trying to let everyone know this man is a charlatan and a trickster. And right off the bat, this is where they don't like each other, right?
1: Absolutely. He's challenged right away. So... Both of them see each other as some sort of a threat, but they don't know exactly how imminent of a threat each other are until later in the movie.
0: Yeah, they do not know they have been. What would be the proper term here? Dicking, dipping their <laughs> candle into the same wax.
1: <laughs> that's the uh, that that's so proper. I was going to say involved with the same moment, but you do you.
0: Yes, exactly. It's like the royal seal. They have both stamped their same royal seal on the same envelope.
1: <laughs> oh my god.
0: <laughs> okay, so. But there's a little bit of foreshadowing here where where you know, the crown prince comes out and challenges Edward or Eisenheim and Eisenheim's like, well, you know, I'd love to put on a show for you. And the guys in the crown prince like, why don't you come out to my my palace, my royal palace and put on a special performance and give us a new trick? And Edward says, I'll, I'll prepare something special. Perhaps I'll make you disappear. Yes, which is a fun bit of foreshadowing where, you know, if you know where this movie's going.
1: Exactly. But everybody else in the room is like, oh, shit, really? Did he just say that?
0: And this is where we learn from Edward's stage manager. He's, he's finding out about the crown prince. He's like, what's this dude like? What's this uh, Leopold like? And he finds out conveniently that, oh, Leopold is a horrible human being who murders his mistresses and beats them senselessly. And he's just horrible to every woman he has ever been with. And Edward's like, dude, he's with my childhood girlfriend. That's not cool.
1: Right. He's like, oh, that's, that's great. I'm really excited to hear that.
0: But now we get the reconciliation.
1: Yes. Yes. In the carriage, they meet quote unquote discreetly.
0: Who's they tell us who they is here.
1: Um, Edward and Sophie.
0: Yes. The childhood lovers are back again as fully formed grown ups, meeting surreptitiously in carriages now.
1: Yes, but it's awkward. It's crazy awkward because she, so she summons him and he gets his carriage together and she, it gets from her carriage into his carriage. It's very like, I don't know what I would imagine 1900s subterfuge to look like. And so they're in the carriage and then they just kind of look at each other for a second.
0: (laughs) I mean, that's all they could really do back then.
1: Yeah, but. It's almost like he has some sort of a wall up. He's challenging her right away. I hear congratulations are in order because he heard that she was promised to the crown prince. And he basically just wants to know, like, why am I here? What do you want with me?
0: Okay, so, yeah, so. The die has been cast. They now know about each other and they know both know each other's situation. Although he finds out there's or he doesn't find out here that. But she, we learn we learn as an audience. She still has the locket that he made for her many years ago.
1: Yes, she still wears it.
0: All right. So there's still some feelings going on there. And Edward may not be aware of this yet.
1: No. Well, how can he? He's been gone for 15 damn years.
0: <laughs> he was hanging out with his uncle when he should have been hanging out with his girlfriend.
1: Yeah, well, Prague. I guess Prague is beautiful that time of years. <laughs> yes. So
0: this is where the story is going to start to get complicated. That Sophie, the betrothed of the the high crown prince, has been sneaking off to visit this poor, lowly magician, and Detective Uhl, who of course knows everything, has found this out. His his spies have said, "You know, she's been, she's been sneaking off to talk to the magician," and Uhl's like, "Ah, crap! This is not going to end well for anybody." So Uhl now summons Eisenheim into a little meeting, and this is where we get this one of the better scenes in the movie, where Uhl just tries to figure out what's going on here, and how do you know the Duchess?
1: It's interesting because he asks that question immediately, but he prefaces it with "This is not going to sound friendly," but it's exactly the opposite. And he, when he asks the question, Eisenheim, of course, does say, "Like, yeah, you're right. It doesn't sound friendly," but. Ool goes on to explain that it is because I'm actually asking you what's going on instead of assuming and going after you.
0: Yeah, that's a really well acted scene. And I think I read somewhere that there's no better starers in Hollywood than Paul Giamatti and Edward Norton when they just stare at each other.
1: So true. It was very, it, it, I hate to use the word intense again, but it was like they were just staring at each other. And it was one of those things where you couldn't stop watching them watching each other.
0: Yeah. And Ull even says here, there's a really great line. So many great quotes in this movie, and you just kind of catch them the more you watch it, where he says, I'm giving you a, a, a favor. I'm giving you some advice here as a friend who grew up a poor laborer, just like you did. Don't fool yourself that you can play in their game. I can tell you with certainty, there's no trick that they have not seen.
1: Yes. Absolutely. And that's when you get a little bit of a crack in Eisenheim's stare, because now he's not challenging Eisenheim as a musician. He's challenging him as a person that isn't on the level that is worthy of the duchess of a woman that he's wanted for so long. Mm -hmm. So now it's personal.
0: And again, besides personal, there's also the professional challenges from magician to magician here, where he almost says, he says, there's no trick you can pull off they've never seen. And you can almost see it in Eisenheim's eyes, because this is the point in the movie, that everything from here on out the rest of the movie is a trick that they have never seen.
1: That's true. That's true. He's just pushing himself harder and harder, and this is where it gets really creepy in his shows.
0: <laughs> okay. So here we go. From here on out, the magic trick begins, the magic of the illusionist, and they have hinted at... They have hinted at it earlier in the movie that all everything you see is going to be an illusion. Get ready for it, and they're going to pull uh-huh. pull the wool right over your eyes. So we go to the royal performance. This is where Eisenheim shows up at the royal palace and he puts on a personal show for the archduke and for uh, all of his royal cronies and explain this show. This is a fun one, Amy.
1: Oh, wow. So everyone is sitting there, the lights are low, and he starts off with a very simple trick, um, a portrait of the emperor, the crown prince's father, um, just appears on the canvas. And everyone in the room, except for the crown prince, is mesmerized by this. But the crown prince immediately stands up, walks to the canvas, and wants to figure out how it's done. Starts patting down Eisenheim's arms, trying to figure it out essentially ruining the show. And some of the people in his audience tell him so
0: (laughs) sit down, Prince, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Eisenheim will do his show, but every, after everything, every trick, Leopold will come up and basically call BS on it and ruin the show for everybody. So it's really a, a, you again, as a professional, this is not professional courtesy. You do not do that to your entertainer.
1: No, no, absolutely not. I know entertainers who would walk over that. Um, But it does show a certain misplaced nobility in the crown prince's character, because at one point he says, Eisenheim is trying to trick you. He's trying to fool you. I am just trying to show you the truth of things. (laughs) And he believes that he's doing that with the country as well. He's sorely misplaced, but he truly believes that. And so he's understandably, salty about it when people are telling him just sit down and enjoy the show.
0: What's really interesting the more you watch this movie is that almost everything Leopold says is correct through the whole movie. It's just no one believes him and plus, because he's a villain, you don't care. Yes. But he is correct about every single thing he says.
1: He is. He is. I noticed that too. I was like, oh, man. Now, how do we explain to people that the worst person in the movie was actually the most accurate? Yes.
0: So... Eisenheim's show is just getting crapped on here. And he's like, well, I do have one more trick. And, and the, the, and uh, Leopold, the crown prince is like, yes. Why don't you show us a real trick? One that does not require all these gadgetries.
1: Yeah. So he goes for the sword. Oh my God. What a great move. Yeah. This is great.
0: You don't appreciate the significance of this until later in the movie either.
1: No, you don't. um, Because you don't understand the full, significance and the full gravity of it until right at the end of the movie. Um, But he takes the crown prince's sword, admires it and all the beautiful jewels in it, and then he fixes it, point down, standing on the floor, and tells the story of King Arthur and Excalibur, and challenges people to come up and attempt to pull the sword from the ground.
0: Yes. The crown prince's personal sword. Yes. Yeah. The crown prince is going to get the old Excalibur treatment here. So, yeah, Edward has the the sword stuck to the ground and all these people in the audience come up and try to lift it. Like, are you worthy of wielding the crown prince's sword? And it's like almost like a challenge of his manhood. And because Edward's done something to the sword, he's put a magnet down there or electricity or something. And again, this would have been possible in that era. This was not a trick. This is not a, a cheat. Nobody can pull the sword off the ground. It's somehow magnetically sealed to the ground. And then, of course, the, the prestige, as one were at the end of the trick, is that the crown prince is supposed to walk up and be able to lift his own sword, thus proving that he is the rightful ruler of Austria. But, Amy, that does not happen, does it?
1: No, Eisenheim makes him work for it. The first couple of times that he tries to pull the sword up, he can't. And... <laughs> Everybody's looking at each other and eyes are getting wide and it gets real weird in the room. And finally, after the two of them lock eyes for a minute, he relents and he allows the crown prince to lift his own sword. And then, of course, he says, the rightful owner, blah, blah, blah. But you can tell everybody in the room is feeling real weird about it.
0: Oh, yeah. He just humiliated the future leader of Austria by not allowing him to lift his own sword that had been given to him by divine birth.
1: Yes, so he's basically challenging the Crown Prince's authority in front of all of these important people.
0: And we're going to spoil... Amy, let's spoil this at the end of the movie, what exactly is going on here. The trick that's going on here. I don't want to talk about what really happened in this scene. For now, all you have to know is that Edward has taken the sword and has challenged the prince, and the prince is pissed.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. He is so angry about it. And you'll find out that this is... Not going to be the last time that he's challenged on any level by Eisenheim. Um, His authority, his affection, if you want to call it affection, with Sophie, all of it. Um, Eisenheim is just going to basically single-handedly pick apart this guy from now until the end of the
0: movie. I'm going to make you disappear would be the optimal phrase there. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) yes. All right, so he has humiliated the crown prince, and naturally after the show, the crown prince immediately shuts down everything. This show is over. You cannot embarrass me on my own in my own palace. And not only does he end the show there, he tells his royal guards, shut down Eisenheim's show permanently. Drive him out of the city. He is not to practice m- magic in Vienna again. And even Sophie kind of pulls Edward aside afterwards and, like, You oughtn't have done that. That was not a good idea. And he's like, why? She's like, that that was horrible. Why would you ever do that? And so anyway, now the love affair between Sophie and Edward is going to escalate quickly.
1: Yes, it heats up because after this performance, he's back at his home and Sophie comes up riding alone on her white horse, white horse is important for later, and immediately wants to talk to him about it. But she's met with. Serious defensiveness from eisenheim he wants to know why she's here what do you want and she's simply trying to help him stay out of trouble but that argument dissolves really quickly into a kiss
0: yeah we get our first love scene here finally <laughs> so what they couldn't do in the carriage they can do perfectly well in eisenheim's house
1: Yes, because why is no one following this woman anyway?
0: (laughs) So she gets followed every other minute minute of her life, but the one time she goes and bangs the magician, nobody knows.
1: Yeah, uh, how is this a thing? I don't understand. It's a white horse. You can see this horse from anywhere. You see the horse before you see Sophie in the scene. But for some reason, she manages to slip out in the dead of night (laughs) and bang the magician.
0: (laughs) Maybe it's like a seventh heaven thing where Jesus was looking after her and he gave her a protective spell. (laughs)
1: That's got to be what happened.
0: Yeah, so Eisenheim and Sophie kind of finally consummate their relationship, and now they start making plans that she really does love him. She doesn't love the Archduke, and she's like, you know, he's planning this coup. He's going to take over the country. He's going to overthrow his father. He's got all these military plans. I don't want to be a part of it. It's just going to be a bloodbath. And so Eisenheim's like, let's run away. And so they start planning now for their future that they're going to slip out in the dead of night and go run away from all this and become a couple like they've always wanted to be.
1: Yes, but we don't know any of how we're going to get from point A to point B at that point. We just see him, we see his mind working, but we aren't given any indication on how they're actually going to make this work. So at this point in time in the movie, it kind of feels like a pipe dream.
0: Yeah, and of course, Detective Ull, is all over this. For some reason, he missed the banging part, but he watches every other thing, and all of a sudden he sees Sophie and Eisenheim meeting up and talking and discussing and whispering, and he's like, oh, this is not going to be good. I do not like this. And we start overhearing plans of Edward, planning with his accomplices, how they're going to make it happen and how they're going to use disguises and stuff, and Oole is like, you know, I, I, I hate that I have to do this, but i got to go tell the crown prince that his girl is about to run off on, on him with a peasant. And so oul goes to uh, he goes to Leopold, the Archer the, the crown prince, and he says, "Here's what's happening. They're planning to leave. She's about to run off. I just thought you should know about it." And this is where we get the darkest scene in the movie: the murder.
1: Hmm. Yeah, you start talking about this one.
0: <laughs> Why you have a problem with violence?
1: Oh no, not at all. Just against the wrong people.
0: All right, no. It's so yeah. It's a, it's a horrible scene. Here is that. Sophie goes back to the prince to basically say that she's leaving him and he says I know you've been with this magician you've been banging him it's been terrible and he starts accusing her of being a whore and she's like you cannot speak to me that way I'm nobility and he goes I will speak to you any way that I want woman. And at one point, he's now drinking. He's been drinking all night, and he's got this canter of brandy or something. And then Uh she's like, I'm a little scared of you. You're drunk. Leave me alone. And he starts, you know, threatening violence against her because this is what he does. He murders women who are unfaithful to him. He beats them. He's just a horrible person. And she tries to run out to the stable to get away from him, and he staggers out after her. And you can see him staggering as a drunk out to the stable, and you hear a commotion, and you hear her screaming, and then all of a sudden, you see... Sophie's body on a horse as she's riding out. She has been attacked. There's blood coming out of her neck. And at some point it were led to believe the prince has attacked her, cut her with his sword and passed out in a drunken stupor. And now she is mortally wounded running, riding across the countryside on her white horse.
1: Yes. And one of his men actually sees this from the window from like his perch where he's supposed to be on watch.
0: Yeah. Witnesses. Very important. There were witnesses to this that they just saw the crown prince assault Sophie and now she's gone. Yes. All right. So anything else to add to that? Was I able to capture the the, the grim darkness well enough for you?
1: Yeah, thanks for that. Um, That was perfection. But can we just talk for a moment about how Sophie, just going back for a second, Sophie... Does not try to hide her affection in public. At one point she's in a carriage and he is, Eisenheim is handing her a suitcase of some sort, some kind of a briefcase. And she reaches outside of the carriage, pulls him into the carriage and kisses him in broad daylight.
0: I guess in magic, the proper term would be misdirection. There's a lot of misdirection going on here where there's a lot of very blatant shows of affection to basically force Leopold's hand into assaulting Sophie. Exactly. Yes.
1: So now Sophie's dead.
0: So now Sophie's dead. So let's talk about the reveal scene here. So Eisenheim is waiting. He and Sophie are supposed to run away together and he's waiting outside at night knowing she's supposed to ride up in her horse and she never shows up and he's looks worried he can't figure out what happened he does not know that she has just been murdered by the crown prince and so the next morning all of a sudden it's this big hubbub that the that sophie the duchess is missing and what there's like a huge search party going out for her to look for her body somewhere
1: yeah in the woods and so they continue to go through the woods there's this huge long line of men scouring the forest looking for her and then there's one looks like a boy, honestly, but I guess he's supposed to be a man um, in this movie with a dog on a ledge overlooking like a river and they find her body.
0: Yeah. She's just floating there in the river face up.
1: Just, just floating there, pale as anything. And the, um, I guess coroner for best way to put it in 1900 mm-hmm. says that she bled out and that was her cause of death.
0: This is very important. The wording here is very important because the, the movie only works if you get what's going on in this scene. Her, uh-huh. They find her body. Eisenheim is the one who goes and grabs her and you know pulls her out of the water and she's lifeless and pale and she's got an open wound on her neck. And they pull her into a car, a carriage of some sort. And this is the man that comes over and he's the family's coroner. He says, "I am the family, the Duchess's family coroner." I have pronounced her dead. No one's allowed to touch her. She's nobility. We do not need people around. And that that's what's important, is that he's the family coroner, and he's the only one that can make the determination of death. And so... The detective shows up and he's like, oh, crap, what happened? Like the Duchess is dead and he's the only guy, the only guy who can really research this for the police department to find out what happens. And he is turned away by the family's coroner. He's like, you can look at the body, you can check for a pulse. But trust me, I'm the doctor. She's dead. So will is turned away and this will become important later.
1: Absolutely. But she is she's laying there flat and they're basically trying to, like they're pulling over blankets, they're looking at her shoes, things like that. And the coroner is like, I will not stand for this. The crown prince won't stand for this. Which is very interesting to note because that probably would have helped the crown prince later, but we'll
0: go into that. Yeah. And speaking of the crown prince, there is some evidence on Sophie's body, what perhaps would have happened to her, that there is a small red jewel folded up into her clothing that looks very suspiciously like the jewels on the crown prince's sword.
1: Yes. We got a good look at it earlier. And now all of a sudden this tiny red gem shows up in the folds of Sophie's dress.
0: And Ool knows that gem. He's like, Oh crap. Mm
1: -hmm. So he
0: knows this is now a really big story. This is now an OJ level story where the crown prince has just murdered his girlfriend and all the media is about to find out about it. So Ool goes back to the palace to investigate, and he looks around, and he sees blood in the straw where she was cut. He sees a commotion in the stable. He knows. He's like, uh-oh, this is not going to be good.
1: Nope. And he sees something shiny in the hay, but he's pulled away at that time by one of his other officers. We need to get out of here now because the crown prince is arriving all of a sudden.
0: And the crown prince, of course, fesses up to it immediately, right? Yeah, no. (laughs) He's like, hell no, I didn't stab anybody. I was drunk. I passed out. Nothing happened. I killed nobody. Leave me alone. And so that's basically his official stance on the murder.
1: Yes, which is not effective if you actually want someone to believe you.
0: (laughs) Yes. So here's where the story stands at this point. Eisenheim has been making plans to run away with the Archduke's girlfriend, his former childhood girlfriend, But she has been murdered by the crown prince out of retaliation. So if if, uh, she can't be with me, she's not going to be with anybody. So now Sophie is dead. And now Edward is pissed. And this is where we get for the last 45 minutes of this movie revenge magic.
1: Yes, which is the coolest kind of magic. (laughs) He decides he's going to start invoking
0: spirits. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, this is great. This is just anger, just vengeance magic at its best that... Eisenheim's new show that he has opened and he has brought in an entirely new crew of stagehands. These all Chinese stagehands. All he does now is he summons ghosts. He has a little mirror or a little table and a ghost will appear on his stage and a ghost will start telling the story of how they died and who put them here. So you can kind of see where this one might be going.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're going to start off small and then, I don't know, maybe conjure the Duchess.
0: <laughs> yes. So why don't you explain some of these shows? Because these are fun, just the audience, watching the audience react to this stuff.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, that part was phenomenal because when he, he used to introduce every trick in his old show. He spoke a lot. He never spoke before he conjured the spirit in his new show in this, like, decrepit old building that he purchased specifically to run his own show. He is now older. He's looking drained. He looks as if he's focusing all of his energy into conjuring the spirit. And then he more or less collapses in the chair that he's sitting in. The spirit will look around and the crowd starts going nuts and starts like shouting questions at the spirit. And they'll answer a couple of them, but the spirit's never on the stage for longer than 30 seconds or so. So you get like an answer or two. But then the spirit evaporates, curtains down, we're done here. But they are now convinced that he can speak with the dead. So he has this new, amazing audience of people who want to contact their dead and their loved ones. And they go every night to watch him conjure someone new in the hopes that they're that person's loved
0: one. Yeah, and what's funny is it's very intricate, this whole section of the movie where Eisenheim is summoning these ghosts, but he never actually says who the ghost is. The audience will start asking, and the audience determines who it is. So it's a very clever line he's straddling here, trying not to be arrested for fraud. Like, Eisenheim never claims, this is your dead son. Someone in the audience says, that looks like my dead son, and everyone's like, oh my god. And it's very clever, and I will talk about this more at the late, more later in the podcast What's going on here is an illusion called Pepper's Ghost, and it's one that I've seen in person before, and it's astounding. It's the best magic trick slash illusion I've ever seen in my life, and it's very hard to see it done well. It's done with mirrors and projections, and there's a separate room off to the side that's like a clone of the room they're in, and it's all about reflections off glass and smoke, and it's so cool. And that's what he's doing here, some variant of that, and they don't explain it in the movie. I'm just letting you know this was... A trick that was known how to do in the 1900s, so you could do this, and an uneducated, unsophisticated audience in Vienna would have their minds absolutely blown, because I've seen it in 2019, and it blows your mind.
1: That's so cool. I can't imagine how it would be done in 1900. Obviously, there's some CGI work in the movie that's making it look more realistic, but it was... Such a cool thing. The first time he did it, everybody's mind was blown. It went from dead silent in the room to, I have a million questions and we're all going to shout them out at once. Yes.
0: It's like an auction all of a sudden. It was. It was. (laughs) So now Eisenheim is apparently the devil that he, everyone says, oh my God, this guy has sold his soul to the devil and he has these supernatural powers. He can conjure back the dead. And this is Eisenheim's new workup. And he's just riling up all these people of Vienna. And then one day, he summons the dead Duchess Sophie, which now he's really crossing the line. And it's funny because Sophie pops up on stage, and she's a ghost. And she's like, where am I? And he's got this haunted look in his eye. He's like looking at her with longing, and they're looking at each other. And she's like, "I I was murdered. And all the people in the audience are like, who killed you? Who killed you? And she's like, I don't know. And she starts fading away. And now this is the talk of all Vienna. And now Uhl gets involved again. And he pulls Eisenheim aside and says, stop it.
1: Actually, there's a big piece that you're missing. That was the show in which the crown prince actually attended incognito. He wore a disguise, attended the show. And Eisenheim conjures Sophie and obviously, you know, Crown Prince is not OK with this, but more not OK when Sophie says that the person that killed her was in that room.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Eisenheim is really pushing the boundaries here, all but flat out accusing the Crown Prince of murdering his mistress. And then there's other stuff It like he's he's summoning ghosts to come walk around outside the state, outside the uh, auditorium and like down the street and stuff.
1: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That scared a couple people but whatever it's fine yeah.
0: so they think eisenheim's flat out the devil now and like you like amy said the the crown prince has shown up to one of the performances and sophie appears and sophie says someone in this room killed me and he's like looking around trying not to get people to stare at him so it's really crossing the line and again eisenheim gets arrested right this is where ul pulls him into jail says you're going to jail for fraud right now
1: yes yes um there's a part where he's questioning Eisenheim, like you need to tell me exactly how this being done, or you're going to be arrested for fraud. And he's in the, the a room in the police station and outside there's a huge mob of people who have gathered out the window and they start chanting, chanting Eisenheim's name. Um, he says, you know, it's going to be worse and you're going to get a harsher sentence if that mob comes into this building. So Eisenheim goes and turns those people away, tells them that this is just a trick. And he did not mean to deceive anyone, but this is only entertainment. He cannot actually b- raise the dead. So he turns around to Ool um, and says, OK, so I revealed it. I'm not a fraud anymore. Can I go?
0: Like, that's it. Yep, that's it. Uel's like, peace out. Thank you.
1: Yeah. And Crown Prince is not okay with this.
0: Although there is one, isn't this the line here where the Crown Prince says, or where uh, Uel says, stop doing this right now. I'm going to let you go. You're not going to jail. Never do this performance again. Do not accuse a member of the royal family of murder. And Eisenheim just says, I think you're going to enjoy my next show.
1: (laughs) Yes. So basically, you know, it's going to happen again and it's going to be big.
0: It's going to be big. And this is the scene we had right at the start of the movie, the flashback, where Eisenheim starts summoning Sophie again. And he's going to get arrested. But all right, this is this is the there's two reveals in this movie where they reveal how the trick was done. And like, it's great because the, the Crown Prince Leopold at one point earlier in the movie says, it's all an illusion. Trust me, all this will be revealed by the end how it was done. And this is where the movie's going to actually do that. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, so explain the final performance here. This is a really kind of a showstopper. I love this scene.
1: Oh, man. Okay, final performance. He's sitting down. Everybody's silent. Of course, Wool is in the crowd, just wanting to know what's going to happen next, because he brought all of his officers in, because the minute he does something untoward, he's going to get arrested, and we want to make sure that Eisenheim cannot escape. So, he sits down, Asenheim sits down in his chair, and, true to form, conjures Sophie. And the two of them have a small interaction where they're, like, reaching out to try to touch fingers. Um, she, again, is saying that she was murdered, and people are shouting things out to her. She ends up disappearing and he's exhausted as soon as that's done. Right then, he is, or, or right before that, I should say, everybody starts storming the stage in terms of the officers and everything. Wool comes up on the stage and decides to arrest this man for disrupting the public and all these other things that no one cares about. And that's when Sophie starts to evaporate.
0: Well, first, what happens, so this is where Sophie flat out accuses the crown prince. She says, I was leaving him. I tried to get away. I was wearing my locket when I died, but now it's gone. So she starts planning the evidence. She starts planning the idea that go back and search the hay. You might find the locket when I got killed. So Sophie flat out accuses the crown prince, and this is where they storm the stage and they arrest Eisenheim, and Sophie disappears and Eisenheim says nothing. He just sits there. He's all, you can see in his eyes. He's so hurt. This is the last time he will ever see his beloved Sophie again. And he's about to be arrested. And this is where we get the great moment in the in the movie where they try to grab Eisenheim.
1: And he's not there. Eisenheim is also an illusion. So no one knows where Eisenheim is, but he's not on stage.
0: Yes. Sophie was a hologram and so is Eisenheim this entire show. And they try to grab him and all of a sudden he's not there and Ghost Eisenheim, just kind of looks up and walks towards the front of the stage and just looks out at them with the greatest look, the greatest Edward Norton look of, (laughs) what is it? Satisfaction, pain, revenge. I don't even know what it is. He looks at the audience and then he looks up and he just disappears and all hell breaks loose because nobody knows what the hell just happened.
1: Absolutely. They're looking for him everywhere. They are questioning his stagehands forcibly, um, but then a light goes off in wool's head that he needs to go back and check the hay because earlier... He saw a glint, but he wasn't able to grab it because he was pulled away since the crown prince was coming.
0: Yeah, Although there's a second part there that the after they can't arrest Eisenheim, they go up to his uh, his workshop upstairs and try to raid his, his notebooks to see what he was doing and how he did this. And right there is the trick to the orange tree that the, the Ool always wanted. And he opens it up. And inside is, strangely enough, the diagram of the locket that he made for Sophie and how to open it just so Ool can find it. So it's funny that all this is planted for him to find now.
1: It's so intricate. And Ull doesn't even realize yet that he is such an important part in Eisenheim's plan. Yes.
0: Ull is the, is the accomplice. It's the greatest magic trick in the world when the accomplice doesn't even know they're the accomplice.
1: It's great, especially since they're supposed to be working for the other team.
0: Yes. So, so Ull now has a suspicion that perhaps Eisenheim was summoning the dead perhaps sophie was telling the truth this locket and everything maybe there's all these clues to the crown prince actually did commit the murder ool goes rushing back to the crown prince's uh what stable and he looks around the hay and sure enough he finds two things what does he find amy or three things actually if you include the blood the blood plus two things
1: yep he finds the blood but then he digs a little bit and he finds the emerald that is also missing from the, prin- the crown prince's sword. And he finds that locket.
0: And all the pieces now fit together. The Sophie's locket is there where the sword hit her in the throat. You can see the jewel from the emperor, or the, the crown prince's sword. There's blood all over. All of it has been laid out. All the evidence is there. He goes upstairs and he goes, he decides to arrest the crown prince for murdering his mistress.
1: Yes, except he can't quite arrest him because he has no jurisdiction in the castle. So instead, it's more of a confrontation. And it's an interesting dialogue between the two of them because the crown prince is so focused on trying to maintain that he, his innocence is untouched. He hasn't done any of these things How dare you accuse me of this? And also, I am doing this for the country. But Ull confronts him with all this information, including the knowledge that he's planning to overthrow his father.
0: Which is a bigger deal than the murder, honestly.
1: Yes, because they because he he threatened to send a letter, Ull threatened to send a letter saying, well, I'm going to tell your dad that you murdered this girl. And he's like, yeah, my dad's not going to care. He says, well, I also sent a letter saying that you're going to overthrow him, and I'm pretty sure he's going to care about that.
0: Yeah, it's, as the Fresh Prince once dead, parents don't understand. <laughs> so, yeah, so the Crown Prince has done nothing wrong, technically. Like, he's an ass, and he beats women, but he didn't kill Sophie. But now he's being framed for it, and the police detective believes it. And the police detective is now going to tell his father, you know, you're gonna—I know you're going to overthrow the country. You're planning this coup. Sophie's been telling people, and this is where the crown prince does the one thing available to him at this point in his humiliation. And what would that be? Kills himself. He kills himself.
1: He offs himself, but not before threatening Ool. He still thinks that he has some power, but then he hears the horses pull up because how the hell do they get a letter so fast to daddy anyway?
0: <laughs> I And they must have uh, upgraded somehow. There's some kind of special postage you can get back then that goes a little faster. I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, maybe that was an illusion too. I don't know. But <laughs> either way, the daddy's forces are coming and they want him to... Unlock this door. Open this door right now. And he decides to turn the gun on himself because he feels like now his power is completely taken from him. And everything that he has been working so hard to do, too hard, as he puts it, is gone. So he offs himself. Done. He disappeared, just like Eisenheim said.
0: As Eisenheim once said, perhaps I will make you disappear.
1: That's pretty ballsy to make someone make themselves disappear. That's a hell of a trick.
0: That's very good. That's a very good trick. Even Penn and Teller would applaud that one. They're like, that was a good trick. <laughs> so, all, all of a sudden the crown prince is out of the picture and Sophie and Eisenheimer off somewhere. We have, still have no idea where they are or what happened to them. We just know the crown prince has killed himself and you know it's, it's going to be the biggest story in the history of Vienna. And all that's left really at this point is the reveal. Uhl has to figure out exactly how Eisenheim did this.
1: Yes. And he's thinking about it. He's trying to figure it out. He's walking along the front of the castle when a messenger boy comes up and hands him an envelope. He opens up the envelope and it's the book with the secret of the orange tree. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, this is a really cool scene, and I've seen this movie many times, and I didn't even realize what was going on in the scene until today when I watched it for like the eighth time, where what happens is this boy walks up to Ool and he gives him this package. Here, read this. And it's all of Eisenheim's notes, how he did this, and how he pulled it off and stuff, just because he knows as an amateur dabbler himself, Ooh would like to know this. But as he's doing that, it's a fun bit of misdirection, because if you look in the background, Edward Norton walks right into Paul Giamatti from behind and picks his pocket. Yeah. <laughs> you can actually see it if you look for it. you, see Eisenheim walk right into him and reach in and grab the locket out of Ool's pocket and walk the other way. It's really kind of clever.
1: Yes. And he doesn't even notice it because he's so engrossed in the in the Orange Tree book. He now has all of these secrets, and he wants to know, like, boy, where did you get this? And he confirms that it's from Eisenheim. So, of course, Ull goes running down the street trying to chase this guy that he believes is Eisenheim.
0: And this is where Ull deduces what happened in this movie. Yes. And he starts thinking back to all the events that have happened, and he realizes that it's a very... It's a very clever way they do it. I always like the way they do it. It's like they movies have twist endings a lot. And sometimes the audience gets to the twist before the movie does. And sometimes the movie is way too arcane and you have to think about it for a while to figure out what the plot twist was. I love the reveal in this one because they explain it exactly the same pace as you figure it out. It's really neat.
1: It is neat. And I love the fact that if, even if there's something you haven't quite figured out yet, they show it to you. So you're able to put all of the pieces together. Instead of just the ones that you picked up from maybe the first time watching the movie.
0: Okay, so this is the point where we say there's spoilers here, although we're kind of spoiled the movie already. But at this point, if you really want to watch it for yourself, go watch it and watch this reveal, which is really cool, and I'd argue is an even better reveal than the Prestige because the Prestige cheats. <laughs> <laughs> Cheater. But again, this is just a—it's just simple misdirection and illusion. And so let's start here, Amy, with. There was the command performance at the castle where the emperor – or the the crown prince challenged him and says, you know, you won't amount to nothing. She's my girl. Leave her alone. And Edward's like, oh, perhaps I'll make you disappear. And the prince says, why don't you come up with a new trick I've never seen before? And so here we go. It all started with that sword performance.
1: Yes, the sword performance in which he got very up close and personal with that sword. Yes. So – he was able to, and and the crown prince even said this before he shot himself, that he held the sword himself. He could have gotten those stones out of the sword.
0: He did. The crown prince was totally 100% right. Yeah. <laughs> Eisenheim held my sword. That He could have taken those jewels, and that's exactly what he did.
1: Mm-hmm. That is exactly what he did.
0: It's funny when you watch it again, you can see Eisenheim palm the jewels. It's very quick. Watch him. It's in his left hand. He holds the sword up horizontally, and all of a sudden, one of his fingers drops down into his pocket. And you can see he has somehow pried off two of the jewels and put them in his pocket.
1: Oh, see, I haven't caught that, and I've watched this movie too many times.
0: Absolutely. It's really neat on multiple viewings. You can see how it's done. Cool. Cool. So, yeah, the whole thing, the whole Excalibur trick was nonsense. It was just 100% misdirection. All he needed was the jewels that night because he was going to frame the, uh, the crown prince for Sophie's murder. And everything after that was BS and acting as long as he had those jewels. It's amazing. All right, so why don't you discuss Sophie's part in the subterfuge here?
1: Sophie. Oh, yes. Um, The suitcase that was given to Sophie in the carriage and the infamous kiss, that that contained several things, one of them being a dram of poison, we're guessing, or something to drug the prince to make him pass out. The night that she was confronted by the crown prince, she had already snuck a couple drops of that into the liquor in the decanter that he had in his room. So when she was waiting for him, she'd already drugged the brandy.
0: That's the thing that a lot of people I think might not catch when they watch this movie the first time that even Diana, my wife pointed out, she's like a lot of this had to be timed just perfectly for it to work. And I'm like, I don't think it necessarily did. It required a lot of improvisation on Sophie's part that she has to drug the crown prince. This is the night when she's murdered, when you think, quote, unquote, she's murdered. She's in the room with him, and they're arguing, and he's drunk. And at some point, she has slipped a Mickey, as they would say. She has slipped him a Mickey into his drink, and now she has to wait until he's going to start to pass out, until she starts seeing the effects of him wobbling. Right. That's when she has to push him into a fight and get him to be violent and chase her out to the barn. So she has to wait until it kicks in. It's not really timing as much as it is her just acting.
1: It is timing, though, because he ended up passing out in the barn. So if she had done it wrong, he would have passed out before they would have gotten that done. That's
0: true. But I, I you could always argue you could he, that she would have made it look like he killed her up in the office. That's yeah, fair. As long as they were alone somewhere. So, yeah, the whole thing with the murder was all an act. We have a drunk prince who has been drugged, staggering around, threatening violence, and and once he gets into the stable with her and there's no witnesses, like people see him walking into the stable, but nobody can see in the stable. Then all she does is wait for him to pass out and just start pouring fake blood around, put a fake wound on her neck, plant all the evidence, plant the necklace, plant the jewel that Eisenheim has given her and get on a horse and pretend she's dead and just ride off. And that's it's all acting at this point.
1: Mm-hmm. It's it's all deception, misdirection,
0: misdirection. Perfect word here. And so now we get the tricky part of the trick. The one thing that I'm not sure they can explain. It may fall apart a little here, Amy. Do you know which part I'm talking about here? No, I don't. How do they get her pulse to stop? Because UL checks her pulse.
1: That's a great question. I thought that maybe she took more of the the dram or the poison. Um, Kind of a Romeo and Juliet thing, as you mentioned earlier. Um, and he because you see in the flashback or not in the flashback, but in the, the flashes of clips that explain it, you see Eisenheim giving her some sort of something to revive her.
0: Yes, we saw that, but we didn't see the part where she passes out.
1: No, we didn't see that part. But my guess that my, my best guess is that she took some of the same thing that she gave him. So it ended up stopping her pulse.
0: So it puts you that deeply asleep that a trained detective will think you're dead.
1: Or a coroner, yeah.
0: Because that is the other key to this movie, and it's really subtle how they slip it in there. And I'll kind of explain this to people so they can know what I'm talking about, is that they find Sophie's body in the water. And I should point out, Eisenheim is the one who retrieves her. He's the first one who gets her. So if she's still showing signs of life, he's going to be able to hide them somehow. He gets her into a carriage, and the coroner comes and declares her dead. Yeah. And this is the part, if you haven't seen this movie, you may forget. The coroner that declares her dead is actually Eisenheim's assistant. Mm Mm-hmm. He's in a beard. He's in a different costume. And people forget that if you haven't watched this recently. He's the one that makes the determination. He comes up, I'm a member of the royal family, and nobody is allowed to touch this body. It's it's blasphemous. You cannot desecrate the dead. That's just Eisenheim's buddy saying that. So they're buying time. No public is allowed to come view the body. The only person that is allowed to view the body is Oul, who touches her neck and searches for signs for life for about 15 seconds. That's the key. They have to make sure there's no signs of life in those 15 seconds.
1: Yes. And it's interesting because as soon as they start investigating a little deeper, that's when the coroner gets super protective and invokes the crown prince's name to get Ull to back off.
0: So at this point, what we have is a murder scene that has been staged, a drunk crown prince with a history of violence and witnesses who saw her saw him walking after Sophie, threatening her with violence and staggering with his sword drawn, I might add. And we have Sophie and Eisenheim perfectly alive and healthy and happy and hiding. And now Eisenheim comes up with his revenge plan, which is just Basically, again, Pepper's ghost. He's going to just make Sophie appear over and over until he drives the prince mad, and the cops start investigating him, and they find the crime scene, and then hopefully he'll be arrested and or kill himself. And all that happened. It all worked out great. It, as a as a, the great Hannibal Smith would have said, "I love when a plan comes together." <laughs> And it's great. And it all works out. And Uhl figures it out at the same time as the audience. And he tries to go catch Eisenheim, who is now escaping Austria in a train with his beloved Sophie. They are going to escape as they've always wanted to. He made her disappear. Think back to the flashback where she says, make me disappear, make me disappear. And he couldn't do it. Fifteen years later, he did. And they go and live happily ever after. And Ool, what is Ool's reaction, Amy? Is he angry about this?
1: This is the best part of the entire movie, in my opinion. Wool laughs about it. (laughs) Wool has it all put together and laughs and has so much respect for the the wool being pulled over everyone's eyes, including his own. He knows when he's been beat. And instead of being angry or having some sort of revenge situation, he just has mad respect for it. And I think he's genuinely happy that the two of them get their happy ending.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. He always had a begrudging respect for Eisenheim, the poor cabinet maker's son who somehow made it big and despite all the warnings, somehow did find a trick that the royal family had never seen before. He made this asshole of a crown prince disappear and Wool's like, "I got to tip my cap. That was pretty cool." <laughs> exactly,
1: especially when Wool started really figuring out who the crown prince really was. And started thinking for himself, he became more Team Eisenheim than he did Team Leopold. So and I think that in some way it was also an honor for him to be such an intricate, unknowing, but intricate part of this plot.
0: Yeah, he just loved being part of magic. He dabbles in magic. Yeah, and he sure did. And I got to give a shout-out here to the wonderful, crazy eyes of Paul Giamatti during that last grin and clap. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I think you made this joke the other day, like at the end of your life, all you want is that Paul Giamatti to clap and applaud at how pleased he was with your life.
1: Yes. Who doesn't want that? Who does not want that? And when we're going back to the overall argument of what makes the illusionist better than the prestige— can we please just put two of these actors head to head that both starred in Alvin and the Chipmunks. We have Paul Giamatti and we have Jason Lee. No one gives a damn about Jason Lee anymore but Paul Giamatti's making money. <laughs>
0: that's that's the best argument I've ever heard. The the Alvin and the Chipmunks corollary as they say in math.
1: You know, 7 degrees, you got to put it together.
0: So anyway, just a wonderful movie, and it's so elegant. That's the one where Diana used when we were watching it last night. She's like, this movie's so elegant. It's well staged and shot, and the costumes are so beautiful. And even like the cinematography, I don't know if you notice the way it flickers. It flickers like an old-timey movie, and there's certain points where it's shot through like a, I don't know the name of it. There's a special lens that makes the screen look like a circle, not a rectangle. It's like an old-timey way of shooting the movie. Mm -hmm. It's just really well done. There's lots of little touches in this. And that's why, like, I do love The Prestige. I think it's a great movie. I gushed about it in our last podcast. But don't sleep on this one. This is equally as good in different ways. So I just, it's such a beautiful movie. And it's got such wonderful actors and acting. And I just love that reveal. There's so many good things about it.
1: It really is. It's one of those movies that if you watch it the first time, you get probably 75%. But you keep watching it, and it gets better every time. And that's the mark of a good movie.
0: Absolutely. Now, I want to talk about my Pepper's Ghost experience. I wanted to end the podcast with that. Are you, are you cool with that? And I'm allowed to gush here for a second?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Fanboy way.
0: I was explaining Pepper's Ghost to Amy the other day, and I assumed you'd know about it. But you said this was kind of news to you. You'd never heard about it before?
1: No, I hadn't. I hadn't been out to any of the places that you mentioned that had done it, except I didn't even realize that one of my favorite rides at the Magic Kingdom in Walt Disney World also uses this trick, Haunted Mansion.
0: Yeah, Haunted Mansion is a very rudimentary form of it. There's more advanced versions. Basically, what Pepper's Ghost is, is there's a room, and there's usually glass in front of it, and there's a performer behind it. And the performer looks three-dimensional. You can look at him from any angle, any direction, and he's three-dimensional. And it looks 100% real. And what it is is there's a parallel room off to the side where the actor is performing, and it's an exact clone of the room you're seeing, and it's all being projected out somehow into the main room. And I don't know how they do it. It's very, I would love to explain to you, I don't know how they do it. It's all projections and smoke and mirrors or something. It's really well done. And at the Haunted Mansion, when you're in the, the the cars and the ghost is sitting next to you, that's a version of Pepper's Ghost. There's another one where the ghosts are dancing around in the ballroom. That's another Pepper's Ghost. And it's just it's a really cool effect. I will say my personal experience with this is I saw Pepper's Ghost. It's the best effect I have ever seen in any production ever. And it was at the uh, World's Fair in 1986. And I will ask Amy, our trivia expert, where was the World's Fair in 1986? Do you know? No. <laughs> <laughs> now it was Vancouver. I would know that because I'm from Seattle. But in Vancouver, they had Expo 86. It was the big World's Fair. And all my class went up to Expo 86. It was only three hours from Seattle. So we just drove up there. And there was a show at Expo 86 called The Spirit Lodge and it was this, you're just in this old, it's like a Native American cabin, and there's this pane of glass between you and the performer, on the other side of the glass, this guy acts out all these Native American legends, and he talks about, you know, the history of wolf and coyote and spirits, and it's supposed to be all reverential towards Native American religion, and then at the end of the show, the guy disappears. He just flat out vanishes, and I remember seeing that when I was 12. I'm like, how the hell did they just do that? Because that guy was totally real. That was a real guy, you could tell. And here's the part of that trick that makes it tricky, and this is why I've never forgotten this, is that the guy was holding a cane the entire show. He's holding a wooden cane, and he's walking around and hobbling around the room. And at the end of the show, when he disappears, he vanishes into thin air, the cane does not disappear. The cane stands there by itself for a couple seconds and then falls over. 100% real, you can see it's a real piece of wood. And I'm like, how the hell did they do that? How did they make part of him disappear and not the other? And that has haunted me. That was 1986. It's 33 years later. That still haunts me. How cool that effect was. And that's all Pepper's Ghost. I learned later. And what's funny is they took that trick in the Spirit Lodge in Expo '86 in Vancouver, and they moved it to Knott's Berry Farm in in Anaheim, California. There's a There's a lodge or There's a, an attraction there called the Mystery Lodge in the very back of the park. And it's the old Spirit Lodge from Expo. Same show, same effect, same dude disappearing, same cane that doesn't disappear. And it baffles my mind every time I see it. I still cannot figure out how they do it. And it's one of those effects that's so good. I don't think most people even realize it, most of the audience. It's like too good an effect. Because that's one of those attractions nobody ever talks about. But I sit there and I'm like bouncing off the walls. Every time I see it, I'm like, this should be the thing that everyone talks about always. I've never seen an effect this good. So... I'm just saying Pepper's Ghost was a real thing. And A, if you want to see it for yourself, go to uh, Knott's Berry Farm and look in, in California and look at, for the Mystery Lodge. And B, here's the bad news I heard they just closed it for renovations like two weeks ago.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I need to tell you guys, Mario's entire day was ruined when he found that out yesterday.
0: I was, I was bragging to everybody about this mystery lodge, and I've been, pipe, I've been pimping this place out for years. I'm like, people go to Knott's Berry Farm for the roller coasters. Go back to the mystery lodge and explain how they do that. Like It's like in The Prestige when, uh, when the, the ingenue is like, explain how one guy comes out of the door and into the other one. I'd love to know you explain that. And that's what I'm like in the Mystery Lodge. So it's closed for renovations. I'm hoping they reopen it again. It's never that popular. I'm worried it's going to go down. But if you ever get a chance to see a good Pepper's ghost effect, look for it. You will not be able to figure out. It's astounding.
1: That is cool. Thank you for letting us know about that.
0: Thank you for giving me five minutes of uninterrupted airtime where I could just brag about that.
1: Well, you're going to take it even if I don't give it to you, Mark.
0: Yeah, it's my show. I'm going to edit you out, period.
1: Well, fine, then edit me out. You're going to miss half of the good stuff.
0: All right. Anything else you have to say about The Illusionist or Paul Giamatti's crazy eyes or my future cuckold, uh, Edward Norton, (laughs) who's going to take my wife?
1: (laughs) Um, My final thoughts on The Illusionist just that it's one of those great movies that unfortunately, because it does get lumped together with the prestige so often, each one of them don't get all of the the accolades that it deserves, um, both of them kind of overshadow the other in other ways. So although I'm saying, yes, absolutely, The Illusionist is better, Prestige is still good in its own right. And it's just a damn shame that they were both released in 2006.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. There's no reason that they had to compete. And like I said at the start, I consider one just a straight magic movie, a period movie, and one's a sci-fi movie. So I don't think they need to be compared, although to piggyback off what you just said, not only does this get overshadowed by the prestige, Edward Norton's performance gets overshadowed by all the other amazing Edward Norton movies out there. True. Yeah, like someday I'm going to do Primal Fear on Staff Picks. Someday I'm going to do American History X. Like those are like two of the greatest acting performances I've ever seen, and they're both Edward Norton. So like you kind of forget this one because this is like one of his lesser performances, but he's still amazing in this one because he's good in everything.
1: He is. He's fantastic in everything, even the Italian job, which he didn't want to do. He was forced into doing that movie because he had a contract to fulfill. So he didn't want to do the movie and made it very clear throughout the entire filming shooting of the movie. He didn't want to do Italian job, but he was fantastic in it.
0: Yeah, he's he's incredible. Like I said, I I would be honored if my wife left me for him because he's so good. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> well i mean i guess as long as you still get a room in the house you'll be fine. exactly
0: as long as yeah he buys me popcorn every so often and maybe some candy or something i don't know
1: there you go maybe he can actually show you how pepper's ghost was done
0: oh that would be so cool i want to know how the orange trick was done orange tree <laughs>
1: well, well there you go now you have something to look forward to when that happens
0: great now i'm ool we've come full circle and now i, I look like i'm 80 i'm 45 i look 80 and i'm ool
1: <laughs> there are worse things to be.
0: This is what Staff Picks does to you.
1: <laughs> well, then I'll only be on once.
0: All right. Well, again, thank you for coming on. And I'm going to challenge you because I want to get you back on here again. You will not be a one-timer. You will be at least a two-timer. So think of a second movie I want to get you back on. You were a fun guest.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me. I'll keep it in mind and I'll let you know.
0: All right. And please do not pick Death the Smoochie.
1: No, I don't like it either. We're going to go somewhere else.
0: <laughs> Good. I was worried the Edward Norton streak would continue.
1: No, no, maybe, maybe another Paul Giamatti.
0: Oh, Paul Giamatti. Okay. You can be my private parts co-host.
1: Oh, done.
0: (laughs) You're the motherfucking Antichrist, Stern.
1: (laughs) Oh my God. We're doing that. That's a thing. We're doing it.
0: Okay. Private parts. But Amy, this will be in a couple months. Anyway, again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J Lanza. And again, until the next time, I'll be out there looking for more movies that deserve more love, and I'll try to find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you guys later. Goodbye.
1: you promise you'll take me with you?
0: One day I will. One day we'll run away together will disappear.